0: been backslidden the Bible talks about the backslider uses that term in Jeremiah chapter 2 some other passages says the backslider is filled with his own ways and to be a backslider you have to have been a front goer at first to backslide and the scriptures recognize different types of people that get away from the get away from church so not everybody who was in church is actually a believer there are many people that come into churches they visit Uh, They check things out, they might even sing, they might even learn some Bible verses, and then they get away. There are others who are more like prodigal sons, where uh, they have the father, they have a relationship with the father, for instance, and then like the Apostle Peter, you know, who truly was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, but became puffed up in his own mind, became proud, thought he could never fall away, and he had a terrible fall, and he needed to be restored, and he was restored by Jesus himself, which is quite quite amazing amen well when we're looking at this i mean we have to understand as brothers and sisters in christ that he calls us to, the best way to deal with backsliding if you're a believer and you're following jesus first of all make sure you know the lord amen and make sure you stay on the straight and narrow that way you don't have to be one of those that has to be recovered because sadly in the scripture not everybody ends up being recovered uh, there's you know at a certain point in Jesus' ministry, he was praying for his apostles, and he says that he had lost none, except, he said, with the exception of the son of perdition, you see. And uh, Judas was never obviously recovered, and he went to his own place and so forth. Uh, It's imperative that we as Christians recognize that we have a ministry, and one of the ministries that God has given you, it says he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And I've reminded you over and over again, I've been doing this since I've been a pastor and before I was a pastor probably as well because I taught Bible studies. All, even in my early 20s, I was teaching a career uh, college Bible class at a church. And I like to encourage people, I don't know how far going back, but whenever, when I first saw it, I was blown away that in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away, all things have become what? New. new. So you're a new creation. He said he's given us, that's all of us, male and female, amen all of us, the ministry of reconciliation. And that means that God is in us, as it says in that passage, begging people, the Holy Spirit through us, and he uses us as the body of Christ, the temple Holy Spirit, to bring people to Christ, amen, begging them to be, to be reconciled to God. So we're ministers of reconciliation. And a lot of times when people see that passage, that, wow, it, it, it should be an eye-opener, it should be like, wow, praise God, God wants to use me. You know, you don't have to be a pastor slash elder or some Christian leader to be in ministry. Every true Christian is a minister. Every one of you are. I remind you of that, but, and I sometimes I use a little illustration that if someone's like bleeding and they got hit by a car and it's a hit and run and somebody says, is there a priest? Is there a minister? You don't look around, you say, yeah, right here. You're, the, you're, you're a priest. The Bible says we're a kingdom of priests. Amen. In fact, you're a priest more than the Roman Catholic priest is the priest. Amen? Because you have the true gospel. Amen. And you are a minister of the gospel. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Amen. Now there's different positions, different roles wrong for a man to want to be a woman and have a baby and nurse, which a lot of men want to do these days, it's grotesque and sick, and men shouldn't seek the woman's role, and women shouldn't seek the man's role, but we're all ministers of the gospel, and that is we are all evangelists, we, we bring the lost to Christ. In fact, after the resurrection, who were the first evangelists? The women that see, had seen Jesus been resurrected, amen, they went back and told the despondent disciples, Right? That he, the tomb is empty, right? That he's risen. And we all are to be ministers of reconciliation in the sense that we're soul winners. The Bible says the soul winner is wise, amen? The Lord wants us to be soul winners, winning people to Christ. But we're also ministers of reconciliation in that when people fall away from the Lord, we as brothers and sisters in Christ are indeed our brothers and sisters keepers. We are the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ who goes after, he leaves the 99 sheep to go after that 100 sheep, right, that goes astray. And we're his hands and his feet, amen? And therefore, he wants to use each and every one of us. You know, I don't know about you, but in my ministry, I'm juggling all the time. So there's all kinds of things going on in ministry and so forth that I'm not seeing, even in this fellowship. I have good relationships with, I have relationships with just about everybody in the fellowship, you know? Newer people I get to know uh, as well to one degree or another, it's beautiful, but I can't keep track of everything, and not one person is, is supposed to keep track of everything. We are supposed to help each other, amen? And you may, ha- you may know of a brother or sister who's going astray, but nobody else does, because maybe they just show up once in a blue moon, but you know where they're at spiritually, and God wants to use you to bring them back to Jesus, amen? So we read in First Peter, or First Timothy chapter 1, When we read that he says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart in verse 5, right? A good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the instruction, that's who wants us to merge in Christ. But then in verse 6, he speaks of those who have gone astray from that goal. They've gotten into the laws, he goes on to say. And then he goes on to warn Timothy, who he's writing this letter to, to keep a good conscience, right? To keep the faith. And he warns him not to be like Hymenaeus. Then he starts to mention a couple of the people who went astray, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he says have went astray from these things. What things? A good conscience, a sincere faith. They abandoned a good conscience and a sincere faith and they made shipwreck of their faith. And he's warning Timothy, don't follow the route that they've gone. He wouldn't give him such a warning if it wasn't possible. God doesn't just bluff, right? He's he's sincerely warning Timothy, don't let that happen to you. Now, it's interesting because he then mentions how Timothy or Hymenaeus and Alexander have been disciplined. Verse 20. And last time we focused on some of the things I just mentioned in the last couple minutes, but now I want to hone in on verse 20 a little bit. Among these, those who have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to who? Handed over to Satan. Wow. He's hand, Paul says, I've handed him over to Satan so that they will what? Be taught not to what? Blaspheme. So that they will be taught not to blaspheme. God is full of grace and mercy, slow to anger, bounding in loving kindness, amen? Because he could have smoked those guys right there because they were blaspheming God. Paul said that he received mercy in the same chapter that we're reading right now, and God saved him as an example that he could save others and save whoever come to him, amen? He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, he said, I received mercy because I did it in ignorance. Well, these guys are now blaspheming, and he's handing them over. Now, if Paul was not doing it in ignorance, and he just hated God, well, it'd be really hard to bring him to repentance, huh? Because he hates God, amen? But Paul doesn't even know who the true God is. He knows the true God, Yahweh, but doesn't understand that he became a man until the road to Damascus. He's been hearing the message. He's been kicking against the pricks, as it says in his testimony, against the goads, resisting the Holy Spirit, as Stephen accuses him of doing, right? But God's been gnawing at him because Allah is a tutor, and he realizes, man, he can't add up. He's struggling with his, his sinful nature. And who will deliver me from this body of death? And the Lord meets him on the road to Damascus and everything just, wow. And he says, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Praise God. He had a choice. He says, I wasn't disobedient heavenly division. Oh, The Lord knew that Paul would respond. Amen. And Paul is now concerned about these men. And he's handed over to, them over to Satan so they would learn or be taught not to blaspheme. So it's very important that we understand that when God disciplines someone to the point where they're actually handed over to Satan's domain, it's not because he doesn't love them or he's done with them, it's because he does love them. It's precisely because he loves them that he disciplines them in such a severe way. Remember the Lord says in Hebrews chapter 12 and in Revelation chapter three, as many as I love, I what? Rebuke and chasten or rebuke and discipline. It says if you're without discipline from the Father, then you're not even a child. Well, these men are being disciplined because they once were walking in the faith. They once had a good conscience. They once had the faith and they shipwrecked their faith. But even though that ship's been wrecked, he wants to restore their faith. And he takes them to the woodshed because he wants them to be restored. That blows me away. When people think, oh, well, man, you know, You know, they they try to come against the Lord as though he has no patience, as though he's just like has a hammer, can't wait till someone gets out of line. That's the farthest from the truth. In fact, he doesn't only want people to repent. Even giving Jezebel in Revelation chapter 20 at the church of Thyatira space or time to repent, even though she's committing, teaching his servants, it says, to commit sexual sin and to practice idolatry. And he's still being patient with her. I gave her time to repent, but she didn't repent. So that he cast her in a bed of sickness and he says that he'll kill her children with death, that those children to be her followers that are not repenting. So the so Lord is serious. He's holy. He's righteous. But he gives even a false teacher in the church who's leading people to hell time to repent. I'm like, wow, Lord. And you know what? It says of Jesus and Jesus quotes it of himself from the prophet in the Old Testament. I think it's Matthew 12, around verse 20, where it says that the Lord will not put out a smoking wick. Right, the Lord will not, you know. He won't crush a bruised reed, and I love that man because you see the the, the, the smoking wick, right? The the flax of the wick would, would you know would just kind of disappear in the in the oil and so forth, and it smolder and smoke and it'd really just people just throw it out. The Lord's saying, Hey, hey, I'm not done." When he's talking about human beings, there's a little smoke there. The opportunity for you to get right, he'll blow on that fire. He can reignite that passion. Amen. Or the bruised reed, a shepherd would take a reed in the wilderness and make a flute out of it. You know, poke some holes in that flute and could make song. But as that thing got older and it got bruised and bent a little bit, uh, then. Then it didn't sound very good because the air didn't flow the way it once did. And they would just break it and discard it. The Lord is saying, hey, even though we've been broken, bruised, and people would typically discard us, he wants to give us an opportunity, amen? And that's why the good shepherd invites everyone to himself. And he's a beautiful God. And I love it that, because keep in mind, these false teachers, this is serious stuff what they're doing. Now he hands them over to Satan that they might learn, which shows you that they weren't in Satan's hand at one time because they were in the faith. And even when people get away from the Lord for a time, I, I'm not one. Some people believe that as soon as someone sins, they forfeit their salvation. And I don't believe the Bible teaches that. As soon as someone, otherwise, guess what? How many times would you be lost and saved? You know, maybe even a day, right? But no, the Bible warns against apostasy, hardening your heart, falling away from the living God. It does warn against that. And what's heavy about this is the Lord shows his mercy. Even David, when he had fallen into, he killed, had Uriah killed, who was committing adultery with Bathsheba. He's in serious trouble because murderers go to the lake of fire, Revelation 21, eight. Adulterers will not inherit God's kingdom, First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-10. and 10, Right? Serious. But what does he say? After he's been in a fallen state for some time, he says, Lord, what? Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He wasn't all of a sudden damned for all eternity. Now, if he refused to repent, obviously, and, 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 and died in the apostate state in rebellion to God, it would be a different story. But David did repent. But God was also patient with him. And I see right here, and the reason I exemplify or you know, mention that illustration is because right here you have two false teachers who have shipwrecked their faith, and now they're spreading their doctrine. And he's giving them an opportunity. And we know, and I mentioned at the end of the last message in 1 Corinthians 5, the man who's having sex with his father's wife, right? Paul says to hand him over to Satan, right? For the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of salvation. What's going on there? Well, he's now being, he belonged to the Lord too. But now he's, is he really following the Lord now? no. Now he's always called a so-called brother because he's backslidden, and Paul, I believe, says that because you have to wonder where he's at at that point. But at the same time, he's being disciplined, and then by the time you get to 2 Corinthians chapter two, Paul writes another letter to the Corinthians, and this guy that's having sexual relations with his father's wife, perhaps his stepmom, otherwise it would just say I think his mom, has come back, and Paul says to do three things with him. Because remember, the church of Corinth got in that mess and their doctrine probably helped facilitate his apostasy, his backsliddenness, because they were glorying in his position. And Paul says, you should be mourning over this. This is gross, basically, Paul's saying. But you're not. You're glorying. Like, this is a good thing because grace was being turned into licentiousness, as the Bible warns. Oh, isn't grace wonderful? Look, this guy can have relations with his father's wife. Isn't grace wonderful? That's not, that's, that's, you've heard of child abuse? That's grace abuse, okay? And Paul chastens them and says, I've already decided. And join with me in spirit and excommunicate this guy. Uh, And for this wicked man, he says, he calls him wicked from your midst. Because a little bit of leaven, what does it do? Leaven's a whole Lump of dough. It's gonna affect the whole church at Corinth. You're gonna have all kinds of people thinking they're saved that are walking in rebellion to God. It's a serious thing. But he hands them over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that a spirit maybe, might be in the Greek, saved in the day of salvation. Well, ha- what's what's the recipe there? Some of those who teach a greasy form of grace, say, Oh, it just means kill him, his, kill him and just so he go to heaven earlier than everybody else and just lose some rewards later. No. Uh, most commentators, Reformed and non-Reformed, agree that it's remedial. It's to perhaps, uh, uh, some would say, maybe a, a, a disease or destruction of his physical body, his sarks, his flesh, to bring him to repentance. And I think most commentators uh, are right in that area. Is that the idea is to bring him to repentance uh, so his spirit will be saved in the day of salvation. And then we read in Second Corinthians chapter 2, that Paul says, when this guy has come back, and most commentators, and I agree with them, believe this man is who is in view because there's no name given. I believe that's Paul, Having mercy on him. Deals with this guy. And he says to do three things. He says, to confirm your love to him. Number one. And I'm not giving him the order. I'm just going from memory because I got a lot of verses we gotta look at so I can't turn to all these. But confirm your love to him. And number two, comfort him. And number three, which is probably ought to be first, is forgive him. Forgive him. Paul says not that he sinned against me or that I have anything to forgive because he recognizes that, guess what, some people he didn't necessarily sin against. But make sure if you're holding something against him, you forgive him. I think this is brilliant by Paul because he's showing two extremes that the church can go in. One extreme, we could be so licentious that we don't even bring correction to a brother that's backslidden, and we act like everything's okay with him, and he's in huge trouble, and he needs to repent, so a spirit will be saved in the day of salvation, and we need to make sure if we know a brother that's backslidden, and we fellowship with him, or we, we know him and, or her, that we go to them and say, hey, please, I'm begging, I'm praying the Lord, man, come back, you know, you don't necessarily start off that way, because you don't know their situation necessarily, you find out where they're at, amen. But it's important for you to understand that it's critical. But guess what happens? Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians that sufficient was the discipline that was administered by the majority of the church. It seems like the majority of the church agreed with what Paul was saying, but there was a faction in the church that still were libertines and thought that Paul was being too harsh. We can't know for sure exactly what he's saying there, but that appears to be what he's talking about. Most of the church agreed and they went through with it. But guess what? Now, they come to repentance in 1 Corinthians after it's written, and they're like, man, we need to make sure we, this guy's not in the fellowship. He's, this is wrong. This is wrong doctrine because Paul says in the very next chapter, know ye not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, or effeminate, or homosexuals, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. It's gives a big list. will have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Don't be deceived, he says. So now the church is like, wait a minute, we're being deceived. We're thinking you can live like that and enter the kingdom of heaven. We repent. Hey, you can't be in this fellowship. You're having relations with your, your father's wife. That's not Christianity. Paul says the heathen aren't even doing this, you know? Not that some heathen weren't, but he's saying that even the heathen, it was like shocking to them. A lot of them, this would be going on in the church. But guess what? Now the guy comes back in the fellowship and guess what? The people are that, good, we got rid of that guy. What an embarrassment to the church. What a black eye to our local church here at Corinth and everything else. And then guess what? The guy walks back in. What do you think is gonna happen with those who were kind of, you know, this guy needs to leave? Some of them were proud. How dare he comes back? Get yeah, that guy's back. Look at. I was gonna say a name, but I anyway, I didn't have that name. I run into that problem sometimes. Okay. Engelbert, okay, or whatever. You know? He's back. And also his little gossip chain. I can't believe he's back in the church. Praise God if he's repentant. Amen. Jesus died for all of his sins. Amen. So Paul's saying to forgive him. He says, for we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. In other words, Satan wants to bring you to a place in your life where you're unforgiving. Why would he want to do that? Because Jesus said, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, neither shall your heavenly Father forgive you. That's why. Because Satan wants to keep you from being forgiven. So try to bring you to a state of unforgiveness. Just like it says and you know, uh, I mean, there's a lot of passages on that. I don't have time to get into all of it. It's like pretty clear. You know, you got to forgive. And then he says, confirm your love to him and comfort him. And th- uh, these are things we need to write down in our hearts. If there's rampant rebellion with someone in the fellowship, you need to lovingly c- come to them. Pray about it first. We'll talk a little bit more what that might look like in a little bit. But when someone has, comes back and they've repented, you've known they've been away, When the prodigal son came back, did the father, his father, give him a, run to him and give him a big headlock and try to choke him out? Say, I'll teach you. Did he wring his neck? Yes. No, man. He put a ring on his finger. Did he put his feet wet cement and say, you're an embarrassment, I'm gonna drop you in the Sea of Galilee? No. He put shoes on his feet, amen. Did he slaughter him? No, no he slaughtered the fattened calf, Amen. and and was so happy that he was back. I'm telling you right now, we have to make sure that our hearts are right on both sides of the ledger here, amen, that we have a balanced approach, that we don't let our, we don't think that a brother can just run in rebellion to God, everything's fine, and at the same time, when a brother or sister comes back, we need to make sure we're merciful, because it's by the grace of God that we stand, amen. It's by the grace of God that we are what we are, amen. And we say, thank you, Lord, for your grace, I love your mercy. Help me to love your mercy, have showing mercy to other people. Amen. So this is very, very important to understand. Now, it's very interesting with Hymenaeus and Alexander because their names come up in 2 Timothy. And we studied that last week, so only do a quick sketch of that. But it's fascinating to me because they don't repent. And most scholars believe there's four, five, or six years that passed between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. We don't know exactly, but we know this. Hymenaeus is mentioned, but now he's grouped not with Alexander, but with Philetus. And there hasn't been repentance. And they're teaching a false doctrine. They're teaching that the resurrection has already come to pass. We're not going to get into that and preterism and all that, which is being taught today in a lot of the church, full preterism that teaches resurrection has already come to pass. It's a heresy. And Paul says by doing this, they overthrow the faith. They overthrow people's faith. So, just like he says to Timothy, don't follow these guys and allow your faith to be shipwrecked like theirs was, now Paul says some others have become shipwrecked too in their faith. And he says that their doctrine has spread like cancer or gangrene, as some translations have it. It's a wasting disease that's taking place in part of the body of Christ there at Ephesus where Timothy is stationed. That's heavy. And then we get to Alexander in 2 Timothy chapter, that's 2 Timothy chapter 2. We get to Alexander, who's also mentioned with Hymenaeus in chapter 1, of the two people whose faith had become shipwrecked in verse 20. He's mentioned in chapter 4, verse 14. And uh, most scholars, and I believe, I agree with this too, uh, believe that he's speaking of the same Alexander in chapter 1, verse 20, as it is in chapter 4, and it says, he has done me much harm. And we talked about that in some depth last time, what, how he... Uh, probably did Paul harm. That is Alexander, and he calls him the coppersmith, the metal worker. And it could have been in the reason that's emphasized, it could be emphasized the fact that he was a metal worker and he's making idols there in Ephesus, and and he disagreed with Paul that, you know, it wasn't okay to make idols. We don't know exactly for sure. But guess what? Paul says something quite different about Alexander there than he does here. In 1 Timothy, he's been handed over to Satan, that he might learn along with Hymenaeus not to blaspheme. It's remedial. God wants to bring him back like the fornicator in 1 Corinthians 10. Yet, it's interesting, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Alexander, he talks about having mercy, forgiving those who have forsaken him. Father, don't hold it against them. But he doesn't say that with Alexander. He says, may he be repaid according to his deeds. Wow, that's a bit different than what Paul usually says, right? Now, Paul is withholding vengeance. He's not bringing vengeance on him. But I think Paul goes to that length, which you don't see him typically go to that length because he realizes Alexander's not coming back. And he's gonna be at the great white throne judgment, and he's a wicked man who's, you know, not only a blasphemer still, but leading other people astray. And possibly, as many commentators believe, following Paul around, and it was the one who reported on Paul because he uses the word that can be translated "informed" against Paul in court to get him thrown in prison, where he's at in Second Timothy chapter in Second Timothy when he writes that this letter. We don't know exactly for sure because there's not enough information, but it's very possible. When you sketch what may be going on there, but one thing we do know for sure, Paul says he's going to be judged according to his deeds. He didn't come back. He didn't repent. Now, we know when God disciplines us, according to Hebrews chapter 12, we're children, but he disciplines us, it says, so that we will become partakers of his what? Holiness. Amen? And he says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So he says in that chapter that we shouldn't despise his discipline. We have a choice to make. We can either accept it as children and walk with him, or we can rebel against God and allow our hearts to become bitter. And as he says also in Hebrews, we can harden our hearts and tune God's voice out. We have a, our relationship with God is not unconditionally predetermined. It is a, it's not static. It's a relationship. His holy influence, the response of our heart. You have choices to make. I have choices to make. We ought to dig our feet in the ground and say, "I I choose to stand on Jesus, amen? I choose to walk the straight and narrow, no matter what happens in my life, you got to be saying, my life is, you got to be telling yourself, by the grace of God, my life is very brief, my life's a vapor, it goes very quick, and if you've been around some time, you know it goes faster and faster, it appears to go faster and faster. Why would you not stay on the straight and narrow amidst the temptation and the trials when all eternity is before us, and it's decided right here in this little vapor that we live in, amen, walk with Jesus now, because these guys got off the path. Now, When we're looking at this, it's imperative that we understand that sometimes we get disciplined even when we're still in the church. Some people, they don't, they're in church, but they're rebelling to God. And look what it says in 1 Corinthians. And I mentioned this briefly, but we ought to take a look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And these guys are getting drunk, some of them. At the, the, the Feast of Charities, the love feast, we're supposed to be rejoicing in Christ. And they were supposed to, you could mix a little water with your wine, right? Uh, or uh, mix, I'm sorry, mix a little wine with your water, as Paul said, uh, and you would dilute it. And by the way, the wine back then, just being honest with you, it's not the wine you buy in the store today. Oh, didn't Jesus turn water into wine? Yeah. But they mixed their water to wine. You could look at the church fathers and a lot of the reports, it was like a four to one, five to one ratio. And if you just drank straight wine, that was like hard drink. Don't look at the, don't gaze at the wine when it's red. Red means it's undiluted, you know? It's interesting because the wine you buy today is not just straight wine even, it's fortified. It has more alcohol in it than it naturally would have because they put more alcohol in it. So don't just say, like, oh man, yeah, Jesus from water to wine. Uh, not the same thing, okay. Be very, very careful. Are you saying I can't even drink just a little bit of straight wine? No, I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying make sure you're not getting drunk and you're not deceiving yourself, amen? Because some people are getting drunk and they're deceiving themselves and that's what was happening in the church of Corinth. And Paul had already told them a few chapters earlier, don't be deceived, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? And a few chapters before this, but they're, getting drink- they're drinking, they're not sharing their food, they're hoarding it. They're not showing love. They're not showing Christ likeness, and uh, he warns them. Look at verse twenty nine. Verse twenty eight. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly, and you can look at the body as the body of Christ, as some commentators do, I believe that he's talking about the body. It refers to the bread and esteeming what Jesus did for you, having a right heart toward Jesus and, and who he is and what he's done and, and having a repentant heart. Verse 30, For this reason, many among you are what? Weak and sick and a number sleep. Some of you have been put to death. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be what? judge if we say you know what i need to stop getting drunk i need to stop hoarding my food and not sharing with a brother that's in need but if we judge ourselves rightly we would not be judged but when we are judged we are disciplined by the lord when we are judged we're disciplined by the lord who does he discipline children why does he discipline us look at what it says right here but we are judged we are disciplined by the lord so that we will what not be condemned what along with the world Why does he discipline us? Because he wants to bring it or keep us on the straight and narrow or bring us back to the straight and narrow. So we're not what? Condemned with the world. So we're not condemned with the world. Verse 33, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Paul changed the way they were even doing their Feast of Charities and their, their communion services because they were abusing it. And they couldn't handle even doing it just getting together without falling into abuse. And then in Second Corinthians, that's where Paul says, you know, I'm coming to you and, and he says, I mourn. It's a word used for people that died at funerals. I've come to you, he says, basically with rods with a rod, because some of you have not repented of your sensuality, your sexual sin. He mentions a bunch of things. They still haven't repented. So not the whole church didn't still repent by the time you wrote Second Corinthians. It's kind of like Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 13, a few verses later, right after he says that, he says they haven't repented. He says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Christ is in you unless you are reprobate, a docamas. Talking about having Christ or not having him. This is serious stuff. It's not about just losing your rewards, right? Or dying prematurely. It's about whether or not you have a relationship with Jesus. Make sure you know the Lord Jesus. Now, what's interesting when you look at 120 is Paul names names. And why would he name names? I mean, they're, they're... Names are forever ensconced because the word of God is eternal in 1 Timothy 1.20. I would hate for my name to be in the Bible in a negative way, wouldn't you? <laughs> Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's heavy. Alexander's mentioned twice. Hymenaeus mentioned twice. Philetus, Demas, having loved this prince, present world, Paul said he's forsaken me. I mean, how sad. But why does he name names? Because today, the way the church says we're supposed to do the church is we're supposed to all just pretend we're happy and not deal with these kinds of things. But that's how you allow cancer to spread. Why does he mention them by name? Because they are a mortal danger to other people in the church. And because Paul says, listen to this, in Romans 16, 17, mark those, mark them out. Mark those who are causing divisions and and, and the stumbling blocks, Contrary to the teaching that you have learned and turn away from them, okay? So mark those who are causing division, not according, as it says in the King James, to sound doctrine. They're causing division. They're bringing in false doctrines. They're bringing in stumbling blocks. You're supposed to mark them out. So if someone comes in and they're teaching, you know, that you can just do whatever you want and be in rebellion to God, everything's good, mark them out. No, that's not true. And it's interesting because now this, is, I've tried to think this through, through the years and I still am like, Lord, help me understand this better. Help us all to understand this better because how do you treat people in the midst of these progressions of where they're walking and then where they're not walking and then to the point where you consider them still a brother, then you no longer consider them a brother because now it's, the Lord's just gonna repay them because they're totally apostate. I think a lot of it is to see where someone's at. When somebody's first turning away from the Lord, you go to them, Jesus said in Matthew 18, right, privately, and you seek to win them back, amen? You confront them in a loving way regarding their sin. If they refuse to repent, how many people do you bring with you? Do you put them on the prayer chain? No. You bring one or two with you, amen? And if they still refuse to repent, then you bring it before the church. The church. I went through very rapidly last message where the Lord used, you know, I <laughs> brought uh, Three of us, because I got two others, and I was brought into something as a pastor, uh, and it was, it's a long story that I tried to say in five minutes, but it was crazy how it all worked out. I was like, wow, Lord. It showed me, and I knew he, he is Lord, but I was like, wow, Lord, you are so Lord over your church that I'm this young pastor saying, Lord, how do I confront this guy who's pretty much was legalistic in my view to a degree? You have to dress this way and all that stuff but was being angry toward a couple of the brothers in the fellowship and both had come to me and one by one by one we all end up together and then he comes in from a whole other state just parks in front of my house and knocks on the door and they weren't supposed to be at my house he was not supposed to be at my house and there's and there's four of us and he repents and then knock 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 there's a fifth person because that would have been out of order lord said i'm not gonna let that guy come until after it's resolved because you got your three i'm like okay lord you care about your church so much this is your church and I love it. It was so powerful. I'm like, that, you know, I was trying to do, Lord, help me do your will. Because we were such a young church. I'm in my 20s, you know. And this guy's an older gentleman. I'm like, and he was a neat guy in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, he just got off the beaten path. And wow, God cares. And he cares about those that are sitting around you. That he, he cares about so much he died for them, amen. So go to great lengths to bring them back. And he wants to use you. To bring people back you want it's hard it's hard at times you know people don't want to offend them somebody oh, if i go to that person you know they'll say i'm being judgmental well jesus just make sure you're not walking in sin jesus says you know before you take the speck out of your brother's eye first make sure you take the beam out of your eye amen then take the speck out of your brother's eye people never get to the then part right they always say oh just leave it alone no that's not what jesus said that's not caring for someone But if you got a beam in your eye, you try to take a speck out of your brother's eye, you're going to hurt his eye worse, right? You've got to make sure you are walking in the spirit. You're seeking the Lord. You're seeking their welfare. Amen. And then Jesus goes on. You know, he says in that same gospel, in John chapter 7, I think around verse 24, judge righteous judgment. Don't judge by appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So we're commanded to actually judge. You know, people always say, oh, the Bible says, Jesus said judge not. Well, he said, don't judge in, in the context there in such a way that you're going to be judged because you're being a hypocrite. But deal with your own sin, then make righteous judgments, amen? So, uh, and I say, well, Jesus actually said judge righteous judgments. So is he contradicting himself? No, let's look more closely at the passage because when he says judge not lest you be judged, he goes on to say, that's when he says take the beam and then take the speck of your brother's eyes. And then he goes on to talk about making a series of judgments. Don't cast your pearls before swine. You know, beware of false prophets. You'll know them by their fruit, right? He starts telling you make judgments. So uh, the favorite verse of the backslider is judge not, okay? And that's also the favorite verse of the LGBT, you know, all the worldly people that don't know Jesus, but they take it out of context. We're actually supposed to mark those who cause division not according to sound doctrine. Actually, we need to warn against them. Right now, there's a big controversy in the Southern Baptist Convention because they've been naming a new president and they're looking at their doctrines and everything. And right now, there's a rift going on. Just read about it today uh, because Rick Warren, before he stepped out, and he has a whole lot of problems we've went through. Uh, he's basically, you know, appointed three women pa- women pastors, which is contrary to Southern Baptist teaching. Actually, contrary to Second Timothy chapter or First Timothy chapter two and other passages, which, by the way, is the next chapter we're in, which is kind of interesting timing. Uh, is he gets into uh, now they're saying whether they should be excommunicated as a church? Saddleback, Rick Warren's church that he left, but right before he left, sneaky guy, man, boom, 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 he appointed three women pastors, which is contrary to the beliefs and the convictions and this doctrinal statement of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so that's a big thing going on right now. But Rick Warren said, oh, you know what? We shouldn't, we shouldn't divide over secondary issues, you know? And he wants, because he doesn't want them to deal with these things. And he wants to just, you know, it's just the camel's head has already been for some years through his church under the, the tent, you know? And then comes the whole camel. But what happens? What do we do? What if a brother is just not walking at first? Do you just treat him as a non-believer right away? No. You love him as a brother that needs to be restored. Now, you've got to be careful if a brother's not walking. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's with the authority of Jesus Christ, to keep away from any brother who leads an undisciplined life. That's heavy. That's a command in the name of Christ. To keep away from any brother, now notice he calls him a brother there, okay? Because the brother is not cut off immediately when he start, when he's when he's falling. So it's a mistake to think that he can't be cut off, but it's also a mistake to say, "Oh, he's it's, he's not he's not he's lost." No, he says, "To keep away from any brother who leads an undisciplined life that is not in keeping with the tradition you received from us." Then he writes in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14, 15, just about 10 verses later or so, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, okay? Mm, he's in rebellion. And do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. So it does are you gonna obey that? Or are you gonna do your own thing? No, we need to obey the Lord's word. But then he says this in verse 15, I love this. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So what do you do at first? Your brother's gone astray. He's not, you know, you confront him as a brother. He repents, you win him back, praise God. He refuses to repent. You still treat him as a brother. You bring one or two with you, amen? And then he refuses to repent still. Okay, now the stakes are getting changing a little bit. And then you bring it before the church and this guy's still in the fellowship, but he's with his father's wife or whatever it may be. And the church leadership confronts him. And he still refused to repent. Now what's he to be considered? Like a tax gatherer, Jesus said. And a pagan or heathen. And the context of what Jesus was talking about there is a lot, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, the man that's having sex with his father's wife, he goes from a, what happens is he goes from a brother. This is the way I understand it, okay? Not that it doesn't need to be fine-tuned. But I look at a brother who's fallen short as a brother that needs to be restored, and then if he continues to rebel, I continue to teach treat him as a brother. But if he's continuing rebellion and sticking his feet in the ground, then he becomes at some point a so-called brother. I, like Paul uses that terminology in 1 Corinthians 5. Because of the gross thing that guys is not not repent of at that point. Because the whole church knows about it. Or a lot of them do. And then he's a so-called brother. I don't know where he's at with Jesus right now. And then if he digs his feet down in the dirt and refuses to repent, and the time's gone by and he won't hear the church and he stays in that state, well, guess what? Now he's like a tax gatherer, a heathen, those were, those were, who were rebellion to God's word, okay? And who were, the Jews were not having fellowship with. Now the Jews took it too far and they would never reach out to them even, right? But what did Jesus do with the tax gatherers and the heathen? He still tried to what? Rescue them, amen? So even one who becomes like a tax gatherer and heathen should still be in our heart and in our prayers until he reaches perhaps another state. See the progression? So I'm trying to give you an understanding of of how we see this interesting progression where the scriptures talk about someone get to a place where he says, I don't even say that you should pray for him at a certain point. (whistles) That's heavy. But I'm trying to give you a, a, a practical understanding of how we are to minister in this way. And in fact, it's interesting because... Alexander had gotten to the point in chapter four where Paul's now at that point, may the Lord repay him according to his deeds because he's not in grace anymore. He's not seeking the Lord. He, he doesn't want God's mercy. And Paul, I guess with Hymenaeus, or I'm sorry, with Alexander, which, which is kind of interesting because he doesn't put Alexander with Hymenaeus like he did in 1 Timothy 1.20. He separates him. And I believe Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and Philetus, even though they're spreading false doctrine and some time has gone by, even at that point, there is still a window of opportunity for them to come back. Where Alexander appears that he's hardened his heart so much in Paul and he was breathing breathing fire against Paul that Paul deemed that he wasn't coming back. And Paul may have known that in the spirit by the Holy Spirit. We don't know exactly what his reasoning was, so I don't want to presume. Other than I'm going to tell you why I come to that conclusion that Hymenaeus and Philetus who were teaching the resurrection to come to pass. They're apostate. They're in big trouble. But could they possibly still come to repentance? I believe there's an indication when we look close at that chapter that they could have. Now, what about when I mentioned this passage where somebody gets become so apostate where your prayers for them could be a waste? Go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Is it really eight after eight? Wow, First John, chapter 5. And now this verse, I, I memorized these verses as a new Christian because they just hit me so hard. I was like, wow. Uh, and he's talking about, you know, praying, not praying for a brother that's committed a sin unto death. But regarding a brother that hasn't committed a sin unto death, he says something different. If anyone, verse 16, sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God. He shall ask and God will what? For him give what? Life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Now, isn't that interesting? Wait a minute. Why would you pray so they can have life if their sin doesn't lead to death? Because why would they need life if it doesn't nothing to do with death? It doesn't say it has nothing to do with death. When he talks about sin leading to death, he's talking about something that becomes irrevocable, something that Prayers won't work for this guy apparently, but there's a sin where somebody could be sinning and rebelling to God where your prayers could bring them back to life like the prodigal son. My son was dead, but he's what? Now alive. Amen. Because look what he says here. If anyone sees his brother committing sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. Isn't that interesting? But I say he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is a sin, and there's a sin not leading to death. Now, he says in 1 John 3, 8 through 10, he that practices sin is of the devil, right? And that he's born of God in the perfect tense. It's he that's born of God and continues to be born of God does not practice sin. But if a brother falls into sin, right, he can be brought back. You pray for him. By the way, that shows you how important it is to pray for people who are backslidden. Amen. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And that comes right before James in the last two verses of the book of James talks about a backslider that needs to be brought back and the role we, might, we could play in that. But here, by the way, what's he talking about life and death here? By the way, who's in view here? If anyone sees his non-believing friend at church? No, his brother. And what's he talking about life and death here? He's talking about spiritual life and death. How do I know that? Look at verse 12. Back up and look at the context. He who has a son has the What? has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. He's written these things that they might know that they have eternal life, right? So the context, he's talking about spiritual life, spiritual death. And a brother can go into rebellion. What kind of rebellion would it take to where you're not even to pray for the person anymore? And by the way, I, I'm so happy he doesn't say, don't you dare pray for them or don't pray for them. He just says, I don't say that you should pray for him. That to me leaves it open. In other words, because there's sometimes, I don't know, that person wants nothing to do with Jesus, they're so far away and so forth, and I still pray for them sometimes. But I learn from this, maybe I shouldn't be. And after a certain point of time, I make sure my prayers are focused on people that I think are more recoverable. But I still hold out a heart of mercy to a degree. So I try to understand when I apply this to my own walk and trying to help people out who I pray for and so forth. So it's really interesting. But by the way, keep in mind the context of 1 John. He's not talking about any ordinary backsliding. Not that we should call any backsliding ordinary necessarily. But the context here is that there are antichrists in the church. Okay? And they've led other people astray. And there are some antichrists in the church that were never of the Lord in the first place. But they're deceiving people that were of the Lord or are of the Lord. Because right after he talks about... Uh, These antichrists in the church, he says in verses twenty-four through twenty-six of First John chapter two, let that remain in you which you heard from the beginning. What did we hear from the beginning? The gospel. Let that remain in you which you heard from the beginning. If that which you heard from the beginning, the word of God, God's good news, remains in you, you will continue in the Father and in the Son, and you will receive the promise, eternal life. So they're targeting believers who are in the Son have received the gospel. But then he says in verse 26, right after what I just quoted, I'm writing these things concerning those who are trying to seduce you. So these non-believers, these antichrists who teach a form of Gnosticism are trying to seduce the genuine believers. And these antichrists are claiming that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh, 1 John chapter four, right? They're denying the Father and the Son. They're totally apostate. And guess what? They're confessing that Jesus Christ is not come in the flesh. He's not their Lord. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 3, it says anyone who confesses that Jesus, you can't confess that Jesus Christ is Lord but by the what? Spirit. The Holy Spirit. But no one who curses Jesus Christ does so by the power of the Holy Spirit. So these guys were claimed to be led by the, by the Spirit of God. They're saying they're liars. They're under a different spirit. So these guys were totally apostate. That's why if you go to 2 John, go to 2 John and go ahead and look at verse 9, or verse 8, 2 John, this is one chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, or you could say verse 8, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward, verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Now they had a lot of house churches back then. And do not give him a greeting. You're supposed to greet your brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. He says, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. I'm trying to get you to understand what John's dealing with. Total apostates that are infecting the church. That's why we we learned from Polycarp via Irenaeus, Polycarp, who sat under the, teach, the, the apostle John himself, that John had to deal with a heretic named Serenthus, and Serenthus had taught that Jesus Christ was just a man, or Jesus was just a man, and that he became Jesus Christ at his baptism because it's at his baptism that another entity, an eon, the Christ Spirit, came upon him. And it could have been you, and the Christ Spirit came upon you, and that's what made him Jesus Christ, So guess what? He denied that Jesus Christ had what? Come in the flesh. Just Jesus was in the flesh. The Christ spirit came upon him. And then just before his crucifixion, the Christ spirit left. That's a different Jesus, folks. And according to Polycarp, who sat under the apostle John's teaching, that when they had entered into a bathhouse, Serenthus and his disciples were there, and John said let us flee the bathhouse lest the roof fall upon our heads because the enemy of all truth is here so now you understand why he'd say don't let him in your house don't give him the greeting of, the, of the, the kiss of brotherhood or the you know what i'm saying don't make it look as though we're one because they were seeking to see people and in those days you didn't have two thousand years of christian history they were all claiming to be the christians And John wanted to make sure they understood who was truly following Christ and who was not. So some use this and say, oh, never talk to a Mormon. Never talk to Jehovah. That's not the context of what he's talking about here. The context is there is a lethal spirit that entered in the church, but they were targeting genuine believers. Let that remain in you, abide in you, meno is a Greek word, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning remains in you, you will continue in the Father and the Son and receive the promise of eternal life. I'm writing these things concerning those who are trying to seduce you. So since these folks were trying to seduce them, amen, now there's brothers getting seduced by this antichrist spirit and becoming discipled by these antichrists who are now preaching these false doctrines. He's saying, I don't know. I'm not saying that you should pray for them because you can get to the point where you commit a sin unto death and you won't come back. Is there a time where Jesus said that a person wouldn't be forgiven? Yeah, if he committed the what? Blasphemy against what? The Holy Spirit. And they were mocking the Jesus of 1 John, the historical Jesus who gave himself for us. And they were of a different spirit. It's called, there's John contrasts the spirit of the Holy Spirit, the true spirit of God, the spirit of truth with, in 1 John 4 and 5 with what he calls the spirit of error. That's Satan's spirit. And so Satan's spirit was energizing these people and they were condemning the testimony of the spirit the Holy Spirit, through the true believers in First John. And Jesus said, All manner of sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and blasphemes with wheresoever they shall blaspheme. But he that sins against the Holy Spirit has neither forgiveness in this world or in the world to come. And it goes on to say, this is John chapter 3 verse 28 and verse 29, and it goes on to say, he said this because they were saying that he had a demon. So the power of the Holy Spirit, they were attributing to Satan. How could, why would they not be forgiven? Because if you're outwardly rejecting holy truth that's in your face that this is true, the Holy Spirit's testifying, and the Holy Spirit's the one, amen, that brings us to the Father. He's the one that convicts us of, sin, of, of, of convicts us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. He's the agent that brings us. If you're blaspheming the one that brings you to Jesus, how could you be forgiven? Yet in Matthew 12, where Jesus says virtually the same thing, how they committed this unpardonable sin, he says to the same men who did that, either make the tree good or evil he still gives them an opportunity. Which indicates to me that when someone initially hardens their heart, there's still time if they have a change of heart. It's not that he wouldn't forgive them because did Jesus die for most sins or all sins? Died for all sins. But the question is whether or not they'll repent. That's why I think Hebrews 6 is very important along with Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 12. Because in Hebrews 6, some people get to the point... Where it's impossible, it says, to renew them again to repentance. Don't say they never repented when Christians. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance, meaning they had repented earlier on. And they had received the Holy Spirit, it says. They tasted the heavenly gift. That's Jesus. Jesus tasted death for everyone, it says, early in that same book. Doesn't mean, oh, he just nibbled, he experienced death. Yet they get to a point where they harden their hearts and they refuse to turn. How do you know they're refusing to turn? Well, they're crucifying Christ afresh, it says. In chapter three, it says, don't harden your hearts, brethren, and fallen away from living God don't, by, by the deceitfulness of sin so they can become so hardened to where they become recalcitrant, unrepentant, and refuse to turn. How do you know where that state is exactly, Joe? Ooh, that's a tricky thing. I don't know exactly where that state is. That's why I try to pray, even when somebody's very apostate, to a certain point. If I still see them still not turning, it's not that I'll never pray for them again. But John says, of certain people, I don't say that you should pray for them. But I see those who are absolutely antagonistic toward the truth, especially those who claim to have once been in the truth, they make the worst of apostates. In fact, Alester Crowley, the Satanist, who's done more harm than just about anybody that's ever lived, he was the son of a Plymouth Brethren evangelist. He said he admired his dad because his dad, you know, he said he believed everything that his denomination, which was Plymouth Brethren, believed. He said, I don't know why. I went over to Satan's side. I want to become Satan's chief of staff. He said, he told me no matter what I did, I I, I, I could be lost. So he had this idea that he couldn't be lost. And then he just taught, do what thou wilt. And he blasphemed Christ over and over and would capture frogs and crucify them and say, lo, Jesus of Nazareth, I have you under my power. Take that frog and crucify it. That was part of his rituals. Guess what? If I was alive in his day, I probably get to the point where, hmm, I don't pray for him anymore because his heart had become so hardened and so wicked. So I'm saying there would be a line where I'd say, okay, that probably applies to that that uh, A. C. guy, Antichrist, or Alester Crowley guy, you know. Uh, but I want to err on the side of mercy. Now, it's imperative that we understand that when somebody refuses to repent and get right with Jesus, the best thing you can do to them is not to buddy up with them and act like they're cool and they're going to heaven and pat them on the back and act like everything's good. And that's what happens to a lot of people. They're not walking with Jesus. They're mocking the Lord in in their ways. They're mocking believers. They're mocking Christians that are walking in righteousness and they're doing their own thing and not living for Jesus anymore. They're making excuses for the rebellion sometimes. And it's imperative that we understand that if they're not following Jesus Christ as their Lord anymore, not seeking him, well, what does the scripture say? First or second Timothy 3.1. It says of those who have a form of godliness, they claim to be Christians still, but they deny the power thereof. They're not submitted to Christ. It says, avoid such ones as these. Avoid them. In Matthew 17, or chapter 18, verse 17, I already went through where Jesus says, they are to be to you like a pagan and a tax collector. In Titus chapter 3.10, another like Timothy pastoral epistle written by Paul, he says, reject a divisive man after a first and second warning or admonition to reject them. In 1 Corinthians 5.12, of the unrepentant fornicator, Paul says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, uh, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. So yes, as Christians, we're supposed to judge those who are in rebellion. Not in a snarky, sin-sniffy way, but in a way where you recognize you can't live like this and parade your sin. You've got to repent and get right if you're going to be part of this fellowship. Amen? Because he goes on to say, or he says also a little bit earlier in chapter 5, verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not to what? Associate with what? Sexually immoral people. I was not, now listen to this. I think this is very important. I was not including the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. So isn't it interesting Paul's saying regarding the people you work with that don't know Jesus and people in your community, they invite you over for uh, you know, a, a, a neighborhood picnic or something. You can't say, well, they don't know Jesus. I'm not going over. No, we're called to be salt and light, amen? Jesus died for those people. What an opportunity to shine the light of Christ, amen? But he's saying not to associate with what? A so-called brother who's in rebellion to God, living in sexual perversion. Why? For a couple reasons couple big reasons you want to make sure that you aren't making him feel like he's right with god everything's good patting his back on his way to hell you're not a friend you know that's like a judas kiss you know oh it's hard to talk to him i just want to let him know i love him and he's continuing rebellion you're not saying a word about it and he's you're he he thinks he's a christian and he's going to heaven the bible says deceitful are the kisses of an enemy right But what? What's that? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A real friend will warn a brother or sister that you need to repent. You need to get right. In fact, that's part of our brothers and sisters. I'm trying to encourage you. That's part of the mission that you're on as a Christian. Not to just reach the lost, but to reach the former believer or the former professing believer. God knows where their hearts really have been. You just go and reach them, right? And bring them back. James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you turn from the faith, brothers, time Christians, and one converts him or brings him back, that means that you are supposed to bring people back. I'm supposed to try to bring people back, amen? That means prayers. That means encouragement. That means love. That means warnings. Brethren, if any of you err or turn from the faith and one brings him back, he shall what? Save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. The soul winner is wise. Well, you could save his soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. I like the NIV in certain verses, but I don't like it there. It says, save him from death. They don't translate the word suke, which means soul in the Greek. And I don't like that because then the commentators, oh, maybe it's just talking about how if you don't bring him back, the Lord's just going to bring him to heaven. You know, he'll just die and bring him to heaven. <laughs> no, he's in rebellion to God. And the word suke right there is soul, is only used one other time in the book of James. And that's in chapter 1, I believe verse 22, where it says, Receive the engrafted word which is able to save your suke, your soul. Does that mean your body? Is that what he's talking about? No, it's only the inner person, the, the, the deeper part of who you are. You know, your, your immaterial substance, your essence of who you are. And your body is who you are too, but the body's going to die. Receiving the word doesn't save your physical body. That's not the context there. The, the soul that's saved, but through receiving the word, is the same soul. Jesus said, Don't fear man to destroy your body, but fear God to destroy body and soul in hell. The context is salvation there. That's why, if you don't understand how serious this is, you won't be as concerned about people because you'll say, well, that person's backslidden and they're getting drunk and chasing women. He left his wife, but you know, he believed at one time, so it's not that bad. He's just gonna die early, maybe you lose some rewards. That's, you're gonna lose your sense of urgency. You have to realize that guy needs to be right with Jesus, amen? Because without holiness, no one will what? No one shall see the Lord. So we need to recognize the seriousness of that. In fact, John Wesley was dealing with people that were in backslidden states but felt that they were unconditionally saved no matter what because they were chosen. And John Wesley was writing to his friend named Harriet. And his friend Harriet had a friend and her friend was backslidden. But her friend felt that she could die in a backslidden state because after all, she felt like she was chosen. And John Wesley's like, no, it's serious. You 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 gotta get to her. You gotta bring her to repentance. You gotta do what you can do to be God's tool. And John Wesley wrote to his friend Harriet to help her friend and get her from her, return her from her back state, like James 5, 19, 20, And he wrote this, quote, he says, you see, Harriet, he's talking to you, the blessed effects of unconditional perseverance, meaning look at the result of this teaching that you're unconditionally saved no matter what. It produces backsliders. Wrong doctrine, he's saying, leads to bad living. Why do you think Wesley's message just <laughs> spread like wildfire? because people were in these days where they just thought they had no choice in their salvation and they were living like it. He says, you see the blessed, he's being sarcastic, the blessed effects of unconditional perseverance. It leads, it leads the way by easy steps, first to presumption and then to black despair. There'll be no way to recover your poor friend to a spiritual faith or a scriptural faith, but by taking away that broken reed from her and by convincing her that if she does not in her present state uh, repent, she will perish eternally. It will indeed be a medicine that will pout her to pain, but it will be the only one that will save her soul alive. What a blessing it is, my dear Harriet, that you have been saved from this poisonous doctrine. He took it seriously. I see that happening today. And I'm, I love to read Westing' these guys, so I'm like, I don't feel alone. I don't feel alone. I'm like, good, he saw it. We need to see it. There's a lot of people that just feel they could be apostate and it's okay because they were chosen. And we need to say, no, you need to walk with Jesus. You need to repent. Jesus said, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. So, but Paul, why do you say that there's different degrees of rebellion? Because even though it seems like Alexander in chapter 4, verse 14 is done, he might be the apostate that you're not to pray for, Right after he mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, it's kind of interesting, he says to them, of them, uh, that when you are ministering to these people that oppose you, right after he's talked about these two apostates whose doctrine is spreading like cancer, he says to do it without being quarrelsome and to be gentle. So that perhaps the Lord will set them free from the captivity of Satan by which they become ensnared. So even those who are false teachers, you can speak in love to, to try to encourage them to repent. They dig their feet in, they become like Alexander, they continue in rebellion, or I'm not saying that you should even pray for them, John says in 1 John. Amen? And it's important as well, that when we restore people, we do it in a spirit of gentleness. In Galatians chapter six, it's just like 2 Timothy two, Paul says, if you see a brother that's fallen. He says, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. What does he mean there? In other words, we need to have a gentleness about us and not come to them saying, I can't believe you did this to Jesus. Look what you did to your wife. You're disgusting. Oh, man. You got to recognize that. Guess what? Is Jesus, how did he, how did, now Nathan said thou art the man, right? Gave him a picture so he'd see his sin. But he still lovingly was trying to rescue him, amen? Amen. And it says with the spirit of gentleness, what does that mean? Well, a few verses earlier in chapter five, the fruit of the spirit is love, peace, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. So in other words, you wanna be led by the Holy Spirit. You wanna be filled by the Holy Spirit, amen? And the word restore is kartartizo. And that word is used about 13 times in the Greek New Testament, and twice it's use of mending nets, fixing nets. Well, we're made to be fishers of men. A fallen brother needs to be restored so he can be a fisher of men again. Amen? And we need to make sure we restore people with gentleness. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 4, watching your own self so that you too are not tempted. In other words, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't think, oh, I'm going to go rescue this brother. I would never fall. I, I could never fall like that, man. It's, it's just ridiculous. Woo, we gotta be careful. That's what Peter was saying, right? And then he fell on his face. And that's why in the book of Jude, verses 21, 22, 23, it says to snatch people out of the fire, right? That's right, Jimmy's quoting part of the, the passage you're hating the garment, Jimmy just quoted, that's been what? Polluted by the flesh. In other words, guess what? Their sin is polluted their flesh and when you're trying to snatch them, you can become polluted and fall into the very thing that they've fallen into if you're not careful. So you better go right with God, hating sin, loving the sinner, and not embracing them as though everything's okay, and staying a distance from where rebellion. Can you do that? Yeah, Jesus did that all the time. And we have Christ in us, amen? amen? But when the woman was caught in adultery, he didn't participate in her sin, he said, go and sin no more. Amen. When John chapter five, when the, the guy that was paralyzed for 38 years, he heals him, amen? The paralytic, he says go, he, says, he tells him that, you know, don't do what. Don't sin no more. Lest something worse come upon you. The guy was paralyzed for 38 years. What's worse than that? Hell. Yeah. Just forgave him. Just healed him. But warned him that don't go back to that sinful life. So we need to make sure. And Jesus, it says, was separate from sin. Tempted everybody like us yet without sin. So we need to make sure we're walking in the power and the spirit of Christ as we restore other brothers and sisters. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, my time is up as I look at the clock. But I want to encourage you this. The backslider can come back. Did Peter come back after denying the Lord three times? Did David come back after falling horribly? Yes. The prodigal son, did he come back after being pronounced dead and then alive again? Yes. If people are cut off, it says, because of their unbelief, Romans 11, God is able to what? It says, Graft graft them back in again. Amen. So praise God. Jesus died for all of our sins. We can't control someone's heart whether they repent or not, but we can pray for them. When he says, I don't say that you should pray for this kinds of brothers, guess what? The other ones you should be praying for. So we should all be praying. Can I challenge you tonight as we end here? And I'm a few minutes over. Can I challenge you in the name of Jesus? Are you praying for your brothers and sisters? Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Lift your hands before the Lord, lift your heart before him, and cry out for them every day, your brothers and sisters in Christ in the local fellowship here and around the world, amen? And not only pray for them, but if you see a brother that's going astray, seek to recover him. And we just went through a whole teaching on that, amen? But you know what? Stimulate your brothers and sisters to love and good works and be involved in their lives, amen? Get to know each other, amen? To keep each other from falling away, amen? And we should be gathered together doing that all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching, amen? So pray, encourage, stimulate, and recover, amen? Amen. Father God, we love you so much, and if there's anybody